Sudoku Book Club, where we finally get around to the books that have been sitting on our shelves for forever. I'm Emily Miner. And I'm Leif Nelson. And welcome to part two of our special guest episode. You heard Leif's mom, Liz, in part one, and now you can hear her talk about her own long-shelved book. Um, by pure chance, everything seemed to work out when we were recording for Emily, and as soon as it got to uh, mom's portion... All the sounds decide to come out. So enjoy the sounds of a house filled with dogs and people and doors and a busy street outside. So for our first episode is my mom. Hi. Mom, you have a real name. What I is do. it? My real name is Elizabeth Nelson you and won't... I go by Liz. I'm not going to call you Liz. I know you're not. <laughs> I tried. Don't, don't you dare. I tried calling dad Kent once just as a joke and it felt so wrong. <laughs> Even I feel weird calling your parents by their first name. <laughs> What's your book? Okay, my book is called, it, it is uh, nonfiction. It's called Waging Peace, a Special Operation Team's Battle to Rebuild Iraq. And I warn listeners, I might often say Iraq, and I will not apologize for that. So. <laughs> Instead of Iraq? <laughs> this is right. It's yeah. just going to pop out. What can I say? <laughs> It's written by a guy named Rob Schultheis, and um, he's he's got a PhD in heck. What's the what's the thing where you go? Um, what was Margaret Mead? What was she? She was a sociologist, maybe, yeah, or an anthropologist. Anthropologist, yeah. I think yeah. he's got a PhD in anthropology, but he writes books and he often embeds with troops and things like that. So. That's what he did in this particular case. And I believe he was with troops in 2003, 2004. The book was published in Flippin' Pages, 2005. And it was given to me, the book was given to me by my brother, who spent a year, his last year in the Army, his last year in the Army Reserves um, in Iraq. So the book is about civil affairs units and that's the type of unit my brother was in and that's why he um, had the book and brought it to the family and I'm going to show I'll show Leif and Emily so his name is in the book and then he wrote all our family members names in the book mom and dad and then my brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. and so it's been since my house is the hub of all family activities since I live next door to grandma and grandpa and have the bigger domicile, (laughs) um, the book would come in and out of the house. So it's probably been in and out of the house since 2006 or 2007. And every name on the list has a check mark on it except for mine. So I've probably been putting off reading this book for about 11 years. (laughs) That's how long I've been putting it off. When was the last check Mark put in. You think, I, I wish ago? they had put the year in there, but I bet it was soon after, um, soon after he came back home. Mm-hmm. So I would guess probably 2008. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> was the last check mark, and yeah, it's been sitting on the shelf ever since. Then you can see the, the, is this the flyleaf? Is that what they call this? The paper cover on a book. What do they call these? Dust jacket. Dust yeah, jacket dust. is kind of. It looks like it's gotten wet. It's all <laughs> kind of wobbly looking and <laughs> faded because our bookshelves are actually windows that have been converted into bookshelves. So <laughs> anyway, this is the book. Yeah. 
And the podcast gave me great inspiration and motivation to yeah. finally read it. So we had talked a little bit before. And when I told you about the podcast and just asked you if you had any books you had not read and that you meant to use, the answer was no at first because you read all your books. Oh, uh-huh. As, as far as I can, usually. Um, but then you remembered this one mm-hmm. a few days later or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. If you normally are up to speed on all the books you have, why was this one taking so long to get to? Um, I had, I just had enormous regret and guilt feelings over my brother's experience in Iraq and my response as a sister and a possible support person for him and his family when he was there. And I just didn't step up to the plate like I wish I had. And so anytime I looked at it or thought about it, it just made me feel crappy (laughs) and, and kind of reminded me that I, that I just hadn't done what, probably what I should have done. So I just didn't, I don't know. I had one of those airmail boxes where you pay for it up front and you can ship it over those things, you know, where they're like buy these to ship to your soldier and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they would have these recommendation lists of things to put in. I had one of those all packed up, never got it mailed. And I don't know, I probably wrote to him maybe once, twice if I'm lucky. And, you know, he was gone for a year and I don't even remember if I called his wife or I don't know. So I guess I just feel like I, I just kind of stuffed everything and kind of put my head in the sand and pretended like he was going to be okay. Um, and he was okay. He did come home, but he was... Um, I also also felt like, you know, um, one thing that it said in the book is that a lot of the soldiers will will not really tell their families what's really going on, mm-hmm. and especially their moms. Well, I'm not his mom, but... Um, so they'll always kind of spin it like, oh, yeah, we're safe. We're, we're great. We have this civil, you know, in his case, we have, I have a civil affairs job. I'm, I'm supposed to be building relationship. I'm not supposed to be, um, you know, the guy shoving a gun in somebody's face. I'm supposed to be out there creating great relationships with the people of the country and helping them fix problems that they're experiencing. And, um, and actually, in his case, so that's how he spun it to the family, I guess, is what yeah. I want to start out with. But in his case, he was attached to an area. So I, I tried to make some notes. He was in the 448th Civil Affairs Battalion. You're talking about Kurt. Kurt. Okay. So my brother's name is Kurt Anderson, and he was a captain at the time. And he um, was in Army Reserves or National Guard. I can't remember which one. Um, but he was pulled up for active duty. And he went to Baghdad, June of 2005, and came home May of 2006. And his unit was in an area called Sadr City. And it had, um, right before he went over, things had kind of improved in Sadr City. And the person who was ruling that area, and I guess it had about a million people in it, was named Muqtada al-Sadr. And Sadr City is not actually named after this guy. It's named after another guy named Mohammed Mohammed something or other Sadr. So I don't know if this guy, Muqtada al-Sadr, was related to him. The original guy it was named after, I'm not sure. 
But anyway, I think Muqtada al-Sadr was one of the people who started ISIS and ISIL and all that kind of stuff. But at the time, in 2005, he had kind of done like a peace agreement and said, okay, I'll allow the American army to try to do some of these improvements that they said they were going to do. So I guess for the first, I don't know how many months, things went fairly well. But then according to Kurt, there was um, an attack on a mosque in Sadr City that he says was staged by al-Sadr's people, or ISIS, to make it look like Americans had attacked. So whatever, there was an attack on a mosque, people died, and then the outcry was, well, it was the Americans who did this. They targeted our mosque and killed our people. And then that gave them a reason to be able to say, nope, we're cutting you guys off. Hmm. And we're not, we're going to refuse to work with you in your civil affairs unit anymore. And we're not going to allow you to come in and try to improve things because you guys lie and you just kill our people. So instead, he ended up on foot patrol like every other. So he did end up being a guy who had to shove a gun in people's faces. And he ended up on foot patrol and doing really scary stuff and out in the middle of the night and going up and down streets and things but we didn't find that out until after he came Mm. back Hmm. yeah so at the time i'm allowing myself to live in kind of a pollyanna world that he's out there being a do-gooder um which he would love to have been able to continue to do you know because that is the kind of person he is really is somebody who wants to make things better for other people and um so in it was interesting to read this book and he had read it and obviously felt like this guy this Rob Schultheis had really presented what a civil affairs unit does really well and it was probably easier for him to hand a book over to the family mm-hmm. and uh, say talk about his yeah, own experience right yeah. yeah and to be honest I've never ever asked him mm-hmm. to to try to and I don't know I don't know, maybe someday I will. But living in a military community and having Fort Riley so close by and knowing enough people who've who've been over there um, and wives of people who've been over there and people who've been, you know, lost body parts over there and who deal with PTSD and all that kind of stuff, it just, I've never felt like it was my place to bring it up. Mm-hmm. and my place to say anything and partly it's because he lives far away i think maybe if we lived in the same community and we saw each other real frequently but we see each other twice a year with all the other thousands of family members around and it's not like we have quiet moments together um to just be able to sit down and talk about deep meaningful mm-hmm. subjects mm-hmm. so yeah i've never even asked him about it he when he came back it was close to Memorial Day. And so before he left from Kentucky, all the family members that could went out to Kentucky shortly before he left to be able to see him and, you know, wish him well and, you know, hope that it wasn't the last time we would see him, but maybe it would be so everybody made every effort they could to go out there and see him. And then when he came back, we had a big gathering here at our house. And um, I'd be curious if you even remember this. We sat out on the I back, do remember. yeah. So we sat out on the back porch over there, and he he talked about. It was almost like we had. It was almost like a little church service or something yeah. in a way. And um, but then he did spend time talking about 
people that he'd served with, people that they were um, hoping to help, what their mission had been, um, and just what it takes to be a person who does that kind of stuff. And then I, and then he's not a very emotional guy. And so I was thinking shortly before this, he and I have really different personalities. And so I think, I never used to think I was extremely emotional, but I am. I'm a really emotional person and he's just not. And so growing up, he was pretty much the closest in age to me, you know, four and a half years younger than me. But then the other one closest in age to me was four and a half years older. And other than that, it was six years and eight years and 10 years. And so, um, you know, the older siblings are more likely to just kind of ignore the younger ones, the farther apart in age you are, you know, it's like you're kind of a cute thing there and they might pat you on the head and, and they might try to include you in little things, but it's not, it's, it's not the same as growing up with somebody. I think when you're real close in it's age. It's the same with my mom and her older brothers. Yeah. 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 So for, with him, because the others were older, they got they all got married pretty young. They were out of the house pretty much by the time they finished high school. He and I were together alone much more often than I was alone with any of my other siblings. And so I used to... So here I am. I have all these guilt feelings over not reading this book that he gave us and not being a good sister and not doing this stuff while he's stationed overseas. But it was just kind of a pattern for my whole life that I always felt <laughs> I always felt guilty about being a crappy older sister. I've always thought, oh my gosh, my kids have been so much nicer to each other than I ever ever was on a consistent basis to to my poor little brother. And I've confessed that to him. You know, it's been like, oh, I'm so sorry that I wasn't a better sister. And he is, you know, and because he's different than me and he doesn't attach, attach emotional significance to every little thing, he's like, was what? What are you talking about? What? what? What's wrong? There's nothing wrong. You're fine. There's, there, you were fine, sister. I'd be like, oh, when I did this and that, he's like, you did? I didn't even remember that. <laughs> So, so yeah, uh, so uh, here we are on the back porch, and I'm talking about him not being a terribly emotional person, or, or he has not typically shown that, but he did. He broke down and cried, and he had two two people, two people in his command, I believe, that died the night before they were going to leave the country. Oh it was it sucked. It was awful. And he'd just been so hopeful. And he said, that's every commander's. And he probably wasn't like the top commander of his group or anything, but he was an officer, you know. He had responsibility for the people people of lower rank than he was. And he said, that's everybody's hope and dream is that you're going to go over with a group of people and you're going to leave with the, that same group, that everybody's going to make it out. And it didn't happen for his group. And it's just really sad because I can just imagine how hopeful how hopeful I would be going 12 months and thinking we're going to do it, we're going to do it, and then at the last minute losing some people. So, So, but this is a good, um, this is a good book. It was interesting to me because it talks about, you know, it talks about civil affairs, which is the group of people who goes over and they're supposed to establish relationships with, um, 
with everybody, with governmental people, with people on the street, with business owners in the community. And it used to be that they would do this kind of thing and really do more blending in. They would dress like the people in their, that area. They wouldn't do it to be undercover. They would do it to show solidarity with them, to say, okay, we're willing to live a life like you. We're not going to sequester ourselves off in some place where the army has guards all around us. We're going to live in your neighborhood, shop in your neighborhood, try to do everything in your neighborhood, and then see what really, really needs to to happen to improve this place and not come in and be the big daddies who make it happen, but work with you to make it happen so that it can be sustained once we leave. Hmm. Um, but I think things changed a little bit for people in Iraq, and so... Um, it went from, you know, they started to get orders. Now you have to wear your, your gear all the time, all the time. Um, and it just got harder and harder and harder to do the things that they used to do to, to really be accepted by people and to see people see, have people see them as, as helpful. So, and Kurt mentioned that too. He just said how frustrating it was. Uh, some of it based on culture, you know, because it's just more typical in some cultures for for time to be a little more rele- uh, relative, you know, well, we're going to start this event or this meeting or this whatever at a certain time and then maybe have people not show up till an hour mm-hmm. or two later and not feel like it should be any problem for anybody else. That's just kind of how things go, whereas I think... You know, Americans and other other cultures are more time oriented. You know, mm-hmm. so um, and then also just the way of different ways that people. Um, I'm trying to think of the right way to say it. Well, he, he's also more recently lived in China, not not in any military capacity, but in a private industry capacity, and just explaining to us that his family's life in China, little things had to be, little things that we take for granted in the U.S. where you can walk in and you just have, um, you had just have an exchange with a vendor at a store, a grocery store or clothing store or the gas station or wherever. They're just, could be considered a little bit more robotic exchanges. It's just, Mm -hmm. you're just doing your job. You're just, you're just buying your item and they're just doing their job. Whereas, um, in China, when they lived there, they were supposed to build relationships with people who were selling things. And so if they went to an area, they wanted to build, they learned that it's better to build a relationship with somebody. You don't shop around for a bargain. You just go back to the same shop every time, every time, every time. And pretty soon then you start to get... You develop the You develop bargains. the relationship. Yeah. You get better prices, you know, things like yeah. that. Whereas... For us, we look at the coupons and we go, oh, Hy-Vee has a better price than mm-hmm. Dylan's this week. So I'm going to go to Hy-Vee to get my eggs instead of Dylan's or something mm. like that. Yeah. So, so some of those, you know, some of those things were similar in Iraq where building relationships or not understanding the relationships that, that the Iraqis were having to establish all in the face of then having to work with Americans, mm. you know, so. Just all the all the underlying stuff that stuff that's not the tip of the iceberg. All the stuff that ninety percent that's under the water, whatever percent that's supposed to be, and stuff that you probably don't even you don't think even about know until you're, you're su- over there. Yeah, and, you don't yeah. even know you're supposed to know it. Yeah, 
Uh, one of the things that he didn't really talk that much about, he touched on it, but one of the things that really, really affected Kurt um, was his relationship with the the interpreters. And so he this author touches on that, but for Whoa. Kurt, I think it really, um, he really established a close relationship especially with one of the interpreters. And if I remember correctly, it's because that interpreter's dad is a veterinarian and me and Kurt's dad is a veterinarian. And, um, and so they had that in common. And, he, and Kurt just talked about how extremely dangerous that was for interpreters. And when, if people find out, they would just, they would kill them. And, um, and I just remember him, once he left, being so scared for his friend and wishing he could do something to make a difference in his life and help his family and help help the interpreter's family, you know, to just to survive. Mm -hmm. And sadly, for a lot of people, it meant having to leave their country, you know, so a lot of people end up, ended up having to send their families, I think a lot of them sent their families to Jordan, maybe, maybe, oh, okay. and um, so... Just those things. So in in some senses, it, it's, it was an interesting book to read. It's kind of a bummer of a book to read because kind of reliving all that, all that stuff that happened in the early 2000s regarding all the, just all the turmoil going on over in Iraq. And I was a little curious then. You know, you just stop. You only hear on the news what what's hot at the moment <laughs> and Iraq is not hot at the moment. And so you don't hear about how's it going? Are they, are things getting better? You know, we're not over there really anymore. And have they been able to kind of take the bull by the horns rather than having to fight us and fight to get us? Even the people who wanted us there didn't want us there forever. So in that sense, I'm thinking of it, those folks too were kind of fighting for us to leave too, you know, not because they hated having us there, just because they didn't want us to be there forever. And, um, you know, just hoping some of the problems that they outlined in this book regarding different communities and the needs they had, and just that they've improved those. And I did look up pictures online of Baghdad to see what it looked like. So it looks like things are getting better. I mean, there were pretty parks and there was where it was a big roller coaster, you know, amusement park <laughs> thing, and they were talking about the zoo, and they're talking about the Tigris River and wanting to, um, I think the infrastructure as far as the roads and electricity is pretty crummy right now, and that there's a lot of places they have to do something called rolling blackouts, um, which we've been familiar with, with friends who lived in Nairobi. So it's like electricity is only available to certain mm -hmm. parts of the city so many sure, hours a day right. and some areas get more than others so some areas get four hours and then off two and on four and off two and of course in the poorest areas they only get about two right, hours a day <laughs> you know maybe the people who need it uh, more than others and so um so i guess the minister of electricity uh which i'm sure there's a more proper term for it but the guy who whoever's in that role is constantly getting booted out and a new person being put in and the issues aren't necessarily getting no. fixed according to Al Jazeera. And then, um, 
roads, you know, getting the roads reconstructed. That's been a difficulty. So then I was kind of intrigued by the fact they were talking about um, a water taxi system that they were hoping to set up on the Tigris. And they said it just used to be, apparently the Tigris goes right through the middle of Baghdad. And they said, you know, before wars and all this kind of junk going on, it was a bigging, booming commercial area. Mm-hmm. And um, and that now the water levels are lower. Nobody's got the boats and the means to be able to do the river commerce like, like they used to. But just, I think they said there's something like 13 bridges that cross the Tigris, and it's still not enough to get the traffic over that needs to get over. And so... Um, they have these water taxis now that they're trying to introduce, but they said the for like foot traffic or for um, yes, so you could get from one side to the other. It's, it would be almost like taking a, a bus or something. But they said it surprised me. They said um, public transportation has never really been a big thing in in Iraq or at least in Baghdad. So, which was interesting to me because you know we live in a part of the country where. Public transportation is not really available. And I always think of big cities as always having, you know, just like lots of public transportation options. Like at least a bus system or something. Buses and trains and, yeah, Mm -hmm. uh all that kind of stuff. And they said Baghdad doesn't have it. And I I think from what I saw today, Baghdad has like 9 million people that live there. So the water taxis, they said, would hold between 6 and 44 people. Um, but then again, in order to get a really good water taxi system going, they have to have the infrastructure, they have to be able to dock the taxis, they have to have, um, they said getting the boats was easy, (laughs) but building the docks, building the parking lots, building, you know, all different kinds of stuff to, to run it smoothly, to run it smoothly, that's the challenge, so... And that sounds to me like the kind of thing that a civil affairs unit would have been working on too. You know, mm-hmm. so I probably should have made a list of the <laughs> of the different kind of programs that they did. But like they talked about, some of the female soldiers that started would help do things like start more clinics for women and and you know outreach for women that needed things. And there was one group that was really trying to work on a sewage problem and one sector of the city and finally got a bunch of um, sewage pumping trucks to come. They finally were able to buy a bunch of sewage pumping trucks and then found out, they kept waiting, where are they, where are they, where are they? They haven't come, they haven't come. Well, then they find out, oh, they got stalled at some place. You know, the Iraqis were holding them someplace instead of releasing them to the people who needed them. So then they finally get the trucks out to the people who need them. And within like six weeks or something, the new trucks had been stolen and driven over the border into another country (laughs) and sold, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that was happening. So um, just kind of desperate people doing things. And instead of thinking about the good of, of everybody just being more trying, trying to maybe line their own pockets or, well, it's hard, so, you know, like... Yeah, when your whole country's been easy, devastated thing, and ravaged. It's, yeah, yeah, it's easy to say, like, you know, to think of the the good of everyone if, you know, you're desperate for yeah. something to right. keep your family afloat. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Or if it really even hard. is that or if it's 
an official who's right. It's just right. easier for them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or the or the communities that would put up. I think it was pictures of this um, Muqtada al Sadr, little tiny villages out around the outskirts of the city. They were talking about one that had plastered, you know, the other thing that's interesting to me, these little villages would be walled villages, which to me sounds like the Middle Ages or something, you know, to have a walled village. But um, And they would plaster pictures of whoever was the most powerful person on the outside of their village just to make that group of people who supported that person think, yeah, everybody here really supports that guy. We're really <laughs> behind him. You know, so in one way they're protecting themselves, but then it would also keep them from being able to get all the help they needed because then it, it could do things like keep people from, at that time then, back in 2004 or 2005, keep people from reaching out to them to offer help because then they would think, well, here, I'm an American soldier. If I approach that little village, they'll just shoot me up because they support the, the bad guy, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so so and I guess that's another example of the desperation, things yeah. that you do just yeah. to protect yourself. Just to survive. Just yeah. to survive, yep. So does he know that you've read it now? I do. I No, he does not know that I've read it. He does not know. I should make it. Little, I tried calling him this morning to talk to him, but um, he wasn't home, and I kept getting goofed up. I know his son is getting married, and I kept thinking he was getting married today. And I thought, well, I shouldn't call him today, but he's really getting married next. Week. <laughs> it's next week. But anyway, when I did try to call him, he wasn't available. But I should have somebody video, you know, make a little, a little something showing me check marking my name mm-hmm. off the list. The final check. The final check mark. I finally, finally did it. 2018. <laughs> yeah. Was it worth the wait? Um. Oh gosh, that's a hard one to answer. I think it was really stupid to wait that long. No. Yeah. It was really dumb to wait that long, and kind of torture myself. Well, like, um, did it make you? Do you feel? better or worse now that you have read it well kind of was it as bad as you thought kind of both yeah it was yeah Yeah. it's it sounded just extremely scary and just uncomfortable that part too you know 100 i don't know they talk about how hot they get inside inside all their gear and before kurt left he's showing us okay i've got this he kind of he walked out just dressed Mm -hmm. all up and everything that he would have to wear you know including the black jacket and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they say that it would get, you know, well over 100 degrees, 110, 120 degrees inside all that gear. And then sometimes they'd have to be down in a Humvee inside a metal box driving around the streets in, in that excruciatingly hot weather. And, yeah, just that sounded pretty miserable. And then on top of that, not knowing... Not knowing necessarily who um, who to trust when you're reaching out to try, you know, to try to be this do-gooder. <laughs> so anyway, but but actually then, you know, in the long run, I, I do, I, it was not pleasant necessarily to read it, but I do feel better now that I have read it. And from reading you right, what you were saying about kind of feeling bad about it too or like feeling stupid for having taken that long i feel like that's like with a lot of things where 
this thing you should have done, but you put off for like a bit and then it feels bad thinking about the thing you should have done already mm-hmm. and it turns into just Yeah, this... it just grows and grows. Yeah. It's kind of it's yeah, it's not a healthy <laughs> it's not a healthy way to go through um life all the time. But yeah, it's true. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It kept becoming a bigger hurdle to get over. Because mm-hmm. um, and... it stops being just... My brother offered me to read this. It turns into 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he gave me this book to read. Uh-huh. And then I kept pawning it off on all the other family members and pawning it again and well, again rem- and again. Because I can remember Christmases or Thanksgivings or whatever, and like Chris would be off in the corner just sort of like Thumb yeah, through just them. reading the book. Like, okay, I'm just reading the book. And for me, it was, yeah, it was just such an obstacle. Yeah, mm-hmm. just such an obstacle. I couldn't just do it. So, finally did it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to help. Yes. Um, so, uh, you read quite a bit of nonfiction. I'm assuming this isn't, like, normally the style of nonfiction like you like what what do you normally read oh i like to read um biographies and and autobiographies so i like to read sports biographies i like to read i'll read like hollywood stuff i i especially like to read old hollywood stuff or or about musicians like louis armstrong or um you know something like that but the reason I was asking was because, like, you were talking about the kind of research you were doing after, like, looking up stuff. If, like, there was a book from, of, here's Baghdad in 2017 and all yeah. of that, would you, would like... You? Yeah, I would enjoy in, that. Yeah. yeah, I think I would enjoy that. I think it would be fun to be able to come across an Iraqi author that could write something about Iraq similar to maybe The Kite Runner or something like that. You know, to really give you an inside. Hear from the source. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the people that I've met that are from Iraq, and I worked with a guy who, let's see, how did he get over here? His wife's aunt or his aunt is a doctor here in town or something like that. So they were able to sponsor this young couple to come over. Um, And he was Muslim and his wife is Christian. And, you know, to hear him talking about life there, he's like... You know, the whole war machine just <laughs> takes over mm-hmm. and leaves behind the majority of people who aren't, who who didn't have any beef with anybody. It's not know? about, like, whose side you're on. You're yeah. in it. Like... Yeah. And so he was saying, you know, obviously, when you look at he and his wife, religion didn't have anything to do with it for them. And they said the neighborhoods they grew up in. It was always, you could be on different sides of things and still be friendly and friends and come and go from each other's homes and all that kind of stuff, you know. And then, yeah, and then this crazy war comes along and and ruins life for everybody, you know, so... So yes, that I would enjoy reading something like that. Hmm. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast, the very first one. Thank you for maybe yeah, thanks for joining us. It. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Wow. My pleasure. I'd really like to thank my mom for uh, 
being willing to come onto the show. I'm not saying we really know what we're doing right now, but back then, six months ago, we 100% did not know what we were doing. But thankfully, next week, we will be back on our normal schedule. But a little different, I am actually going to be talking about not a book. Instead, Zelda Breath of the Wild, which I finally completed. So, until then, bye-bye. Bye, guys.